This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. I'm Cindy Adams, the same Cindy Adams who does the column in the New York Post. I do this broadcast every Sunday on WABC from 1 to 2. Usually, I do some scintillating, semi-brilliant interview. Like today, I'll be talking with DNC's former chairlady, Donna Brazil, and Broadway's number one PR guy, Rick Miramontes. Meanwhile, meanwhile, a little dish. Tonight is the second installment of Gossip, a four-part episode series, a documentary on me. It's 8 p.m. on Showtime. I forget what's on this coming episode, but here's some old, old interview snippets I recall. Back in the old days, a thousand years ago, there was a lady called Tallulah Bankhead. She was in a bathroom stall. It had no toilet paper. So she knocked on our mutual wall to ask, Mrs. Adams, could you look in your purse? If I gave you a ten, could you change it and give me back two fives? Okay. Then there's the time I interviewed Panama's then leader, General Manuel Noriega. Every airport light instantly turned off when my plane arrived. The area was shut, pitch black, and not one other soul present. It was silent. I was terrified. Soldiers with rifles wordlessly stuffed me into a black car, and I was taken to where the general was. It was very scary. Then there was the time, Jaja Gabor. Remember Jaja Gabor? Jaja's mother was Jolie Gabor. Their lifestyle I had written in a book. The Gabors were Jewish. But Jolie told me, in the book, darling, you make us Catholics. Here's some other stuff. Lobbying firms elbow to the front of the line with every new administration. How our government, our new governor, Hochul's Focal, now seems to be a firm called Bolton St. John's. You won't know it. I'm telling it to you. It's like New York's drugstore Dwayne Reed. Its name came from the streets on which the owners grew up. This was the same thing on our new governor's pet place. Partner Adler, one p- partner came from Bolton Street in the Bronx. The other partner, Miller, played stickball on St. John's Place in Brooklyn. I guess we're lucky that Albany's newest temp, the yokel Hokel, didn't come from upstate Butts Road. Wait, more. Anyone remember that creature, Honey Boo Boo? We met her at age six in 2012 on a beauty pageant circuit with her charming mom, June, who was as delicate and refreshing as a ten-wheeler? I remember when dear, darling, Honey Boo Boo lifted up her lovely mom's house dress. Oh, it was so nice. You could have seen Thailand. Anyway, sweet little Honey Boo Boo's back. She's now 16, and she's doing reality TV. She says she now wants to use her real name, Alana, 
Also, she says, quote, I've got a little extra fat meat on my bones, but still, I know I'm beautiful. I've got a banging body. We're talking nothing but class. Here's another one little story. This is a fact. Tribal society Afghanistan listens only to its tribal chieftains. Taliban speaker Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar was arrested in 2010. Now he's president. Anyway, after taking five as Taliban leader, down the line this leader will creep back to his cave. And down that same line, that land will eventually revert to the Stone Age. Why am I telling you this? I've lived in Kabul. I was in Kabul twice. I stayed at our embassy with America's ambassador, Henry Byrode. This is a thousand years back. After one interminable flight there, I first overnighted at the city's hotel. Forget English or some alternate communication. We communicated with the servants in hand signals. My husband laid out one leg of three pairs of pants and mimicked the idea of pressing. The Afghan valet wore turban, harem pants, turn-up slippers. He nodded, yes. He took the three pair of pants. Then he returned, but only that one leg, the right leg of each of three pairs of pants were pressed. I'll be back in a minute. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Donna Brazile is a political strategist. She's a campaign manager and has been TV commentator and is and was twice chairperson of the Democratic National Committee. I love her madly, even if I don't believe in every Democratic thing she tells me. So, Donna, my love whom I adore, how'd a classy person like you get into politics in the first place? Well, first of all, Cindy, although I cannot be there with you in person, I am so glad to be talking with you. I was a young girl. I had nothing to do. And one year... My parents told me that they were going out to get registered and vote. And I said, for what? And they said, because the candidate promised to, you know, pave the roads. And I said, pave the roads? We need playgrounds. So I got involved in that campaign because I believed that we needed playgrounds in my neighborhood. So that was my first campaign. It took place over 50 years ago. I got the itch, and I haven't stopped scratching. (laughs) How did you get to be DNC chairperson? twice. Well, I call myself the accidental chair because no one ever puts being chair of their political party on their bucket list when they're a child. But I wanted to help my party, help my country. Of course, Barack Obama was president. He made me the the first vice president, so to speak. And so, as you know, when something happened to the the big gun, they go after the little uh, shots. And I was a little shot and I got selected to be chair not once, but twice in my life. Now, Can I ask you, did you ever, in all of these 50 years or so, did you ever F up? Oh, yes. 
I mean, part of the job of being in politics is that you can make mistakes and then live to repeat them or or learn from them. So absolutely. Coming up uh, at a very difficult but interesting time in American life, uh, I thought I had my mouth was more than just a megaphone. I thought my mouth could broadcast, you know, far and wide if I just talked long enough. And so, yes, I, I've gotten in trouble, but but by and large, I think I've had a very successful career as somebody who's gone out there to work on campaigns, 10 presidential campaigns, 55 uh, congressional campaigns, 19 state and local campaigns. I've worked in 49 states. One more state, I might become Miss USA without the bikini. Okay, never mind all how great you are. Let me ask you, how many campaigns have you and I shared together? What were, what were you actually campaign manager for, which got all blown up out of proportion? Well, you and I, uh, as you well know, we've gotten to know each other during those every four year cycles yeah. when yeah. We, uh, we we show up at, in one of those uh, great American cities and we get an opportunity uh, to uh, not only see the candidates in their, their primetime glory in their speeches, but I met you uh, one year back in 1996. It was Chicago Sheridan Hotel, and I learned yeah. that you were yeah. going to be covering uh, uh, what I call called the primetime events, uh, you and I met up in one of those big suites at the convention center, and you were looking for, I, I would say, people who look good and, and could actually sing if they got on stage, and I was just trying to make sure my candidate didn't show up in another person's suite. So we, we met a long time ago, and... Honestly, we've been to Los Angeles together. I've saw you at a few Republican conventions, but I've seen you most of all at Democratic conventions, including the one that uh, nominated my old boss, Al Gore. Whatever happened to that campaign, honey? <laughs> you mean the one that we came up short 537 votes and ended up in the Supreme Court and they told us to shut it down and we did? Yeah. Well, whatever happened to that one, honey? You know, I always tell people there are three ways to lose a campaign. The first way, of course, is to have a bad candidate. The second way, of course, is to lose your home state. And the third way is not to count all of the people who actually went out and voted. So we lost uh, by, I think, uh, losing Tennessee. We relied on Florida. And while Florida is good for sunshine and vitamin D, it's not so good for presidential candidates, especially if you're a Democrat. I remember we had lousy food at that campaign. That's what I remember mostly because you and I were always back in, in, in the restaurant. I remember that. But what was, can you run us by, in case there's anybody who's only 11 years old, can you run us by the campaign that you lost for president? Well, actually, I've lost several, and uh, I guess that that can also be on my my short list. Uh, when they uh, when they call me home, they can say, "Well, she went she went out to to change the world, but she only she was only able to do it two or three times in a lifetime." Um, and that's not a bad number. I mean, look, the the truth is is that running a campaign is it's like running a business and, and running a corporation, but it's not like running a government. Uh, you have to know how to uh, pick them. You got to know how to hold them and most of all, you got to know how to go out there and grab as many people as you can to get them to the polls. 
um, the best campaign in my entire life, and it wasn't a winning campaign, but it was a campaign that taught me all of the basics, was, of course, Jesse Jackson. Uh, that historic campaign taught me that you still have to go out there and register people to vote, motivate them, inspire them, and perhaps you, you lose, but you come back to the next season and you can win one. What about people of color? Is it more difficult to get into politics or easier now because things are happening to us so quickly? What about that? You're mentioning him. I would like to know what you think about the situation today. Well, I, when I first got involved, and of course it was the late 60s, the 70s, by the time I was able to register and vote, we still had less than 5,000 uh, 5, black elected officials, black Hispanic elected officials. So you look at the, the country today, we have more than 10,000 for two reasons. More Americans are engaged, more people are willing to vote for someone that don't look like them and perhaps don't even think like them. But we've made enormous progress. But what worries me now, and I think it should worry every American, is that we put partisan over citizenship, and we should constantly believe that every citizen deserves the freedom to vote. And that's what worries me today about American politics. We've made it so partisan, so difficult, and we're erecting barriers that should not exist in our democracy. Okay, okay. Well, it all sounds great, and you say it so easily. But the thing I'd like to know is, is it to get the best people, regardless of color, whether they're black or white or anything— isn't it just to get the best, not because of their color? Well, it's just like a football team. I mean, we're about to go into the we, – we're finishing up the preseason. You want to get the best players, no matter what they look like, but you also don't want to erect barriers. We want to get the best politicians. We want to get the best public servants. And, you know, once upon a time, we only uh, pick people from certain sides of the train tracks, but today I think it's better. But can we can we go further? Absolutely. Look, look what's happened in your beloved state of New York. New York just – got his first governor. Now, she's accidental as well until next election, and, and I, I'm sure the people in New York will reward her and give her an opportunity to serve out four years of, on her own. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't make it harder to vote, nor should we deny people the right to be on the stage simply because of the way they look. Oh, come on. You just say all the nice things, for God's sakes. What well, do you want me to say? Uh, I mean, oh, nah, I come on. We've come far. We've had one black president in over 240 years. We've got one female vice president who also happens to be a woman of color in 240 years. I mean, if we wait every 240 years, maybe we'll get the second one. Maybe we'll get the first Hispanic, the first disabled, the first gay. I think it's time that we just look at the very best. And, yes, if you look at the very best, they come in all colors, shapes, and sizes. You know, you're getting to be boring. I tell you the truth. Dude. Well, you know, I'm over 60 now, so I, I hope I am slowing down. If I don't. Oh, leave me. Oh, shut up. I'm going to ask something else. I don't want to bore anybody. Oh, I leave me alone. Like... I'm speaking. Baby, you are. You, by the way, you are gorgeous. So, you whatever you're, you're doing, behind. I want to do more of it. I need to drink less wine and more water, right? Well, <laughs> listen, don't I remember that you gave Hillary questions, actually? Well, I didn't give her questions as much as I gave CNN an opportunity to ask her questions. You know, you ever put it that uh, way? No, and it I wouldn't. sound so bad. No, I'm asking it my way. Didn't you ever give Hillary questions? No, I didn't. I gave, uh, and what, what happened, I was vice chair of the party. I gave the candidates at that time, it was Bernie and Hillary, the opportunity to participate in a CNN town hall forum on the Flint water crisis, and the questions would 
focus on the Flint water crisis. It was leaked. It was not my emails that were leaked. It was John Podesta. But I, I owned up to it. I, I'm like Joe Biden. I'll own up to my mistakes if, uh, as long oh, as oh, people oh. give me a fair shake to tell what the truth is. I own up to it. I own up to the fact that uh, we had six debates and I expanded it uh, to more than 12 debates and forums and town halls. And as a result of that, I had to go back to those candidates and say, look, we want to have more debates, town halls and forums. And here's what we're going to do. Now, when it was leaked, it looked like I was leaking, but I wasn't leaking. I was just expanding the number of debates, town halls and forums. But I take responsibility. If people want to call me a cheater, fine. I never cheated on my husband because I've never been married. Well, that's one of the reasons, hon. Okay. I know, because I probably would, huh? <laughs> but I'm a good old Catholic okay, girl. Before, I go to church excuse, every Sunday. Excuse me. You mentioned, I want to talk about you being an actress, but in before, you just mentioned, if you'll pardon the expression, Joe Biden, if you'll really excuse the expression, you're going to tell me how great he is before I throw up? Is that what you're going to tell me? I would never put you in a situation where you would throw up on such wonderful day and the clothes you're probably wearing. <laughs> but no, I, I do believe that he was dealt a bad hand and made, oh, probably God. made a bad hand worse. But uh, no, I, I, uh, I, I have enormous love and respect for Joe Biden. You know, did I ever tell you that Joe Biden was one of the first candidates after I worked for Jesse Jackson and offered me a job? No, you didn't, and I don't want to hear it again anyway. All right. Okay. But anyway, he's a good man. He's my president, and whether my president uh, is is Donald Trump, George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan. I've had them all, and Bill Clinton. Uh, my president, we get a president every four years, and I'm going to stick with him. Gosh, that's so interesting for you to say that. It's really, true. I'm getting nervous with all of your inf information. What's the actress part of you? You're doing acting. How is this possible? I mean, I know uh, you. How could you be an actress? You know, I've appeared on The Good Wife, The House Cards, but after all these years in American politics, I'm probably best suited for the Game of Thrones if it ever comes back. <laughs> at, at this point, Cindy, I've dealt with everything this side of dragons, you know? Uh, but when I play myself, all I have to do is be myself and resist the temptation to tell the director that's not what Donna would say. But I love it. I love being a, a moonlight. As an actress, you know, acting is like politics. You have to say the right thing at the right time or everything goes wrong. It's just that in politics, there are no second takes. If you're speaking about politics, what is the BS quotient in politics? It's heavy with BS these days. Now, you're going to oh, tell me I'm wrong? Because no. that's, oh, you're going to tell me I'm right? You are absolutely right. And you know why? Because they rely on spin. They rely on having sound bites uh, and not substance. Uh, they rely on what they read from uh, polling people as opposed to going out and actually talking to people. Um, what I love about being an old-fashioned politician or a public servant is I still believe that the people are right. But you got to talk to people. you gotta, you got to sort of look them in the eye and get that feel about what they really believe in. So that's what I like about politicians. But you got a lot of BS, a lot of what I call performative outrage that you see on television. And it's stinky. It's stinky. It's not right. I like that. Stinky. I have to use that. That's really nice. Stinky. It sounds better than that other S word. <laughs> you, if you're not careful, you'll use that one too. Is there anything you still cannot live down that you did that went lousy? 
Well, uh, there are a lot of things in my personal life I can't. Well, we'll, down we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, that, that, that'll take two years to, to describe. <laughs> uh, but no, I, you look. I, I'm I'm so glad that people have uh, people believe in second chances and redemption. And I, I've had a lot of campaigns. I've, I've been. I, I I love people. I know Democrats and Republicans and everything in between. Is there anything you extreme. can't live down? Never mind the BS. Is no, there anything I, you can't yes, live? I mean, look, I don't like the fact that, uh, uh, you know, I've been written up for doing things that I don't like. But by and large, it was nothing illegal. That's good. Right. Yeah. I've never done anything illegal. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I've tried to uh, I've tried to apologize for any mistakes I've made. But I but I'm someone who believes that you can grow and make a mistake and still come back and try to do it better the next time. Oh, Donna, your story has really touched my heart. Let me ask you about helping Vice President Kamala Harris, who could use some help. She is, um, you know, I didn't know her that that well uh, 10 years ago, but I got a chance to meet her when she was the AG in California um, and all through her Senate career, uh, and when she ran for president, I didn't endorse in that political cycle, but I want to be helpful to her. I want to be helpful to anybody who is uh, doing something that's difficult and challenging. Remember, we've never had a female vice president before, so I'm glad to be part of a small group of women, all of us with experience in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, and we want to be her big sisters. Yeah, we are well, her big sisters. Well, okay. Well, stepsisters. Hey, look, I have step-sister. two older sisters, and you know what? They put me, at least one of them, uh, they, she puts me in my place from time to time. Uh, she tells me uh, to move away from the table. That's another way of saying <laughs> stop eating too much. So it's good to have a big sister. It's nothing bad. You like my big sister. You have told me some time to shut up. Oh, yes, I have. And if you keep telling me how wonderful Biden is, I'm going to tell you again to shut up. But well, in the he, me- is. he is. He's so oh, wonderful. Please. He oh, makes please. people like you oh, want please. to throw up. Oh, That's you a make good yeah, thing. Yeah, please. That's a good please. thing. Tell me, going from Biden, tell me about your dog. I know you got a dog that you Ooh, love. Tell we. Me. <laughs> Do you know that I heard today someone describe my dog as being as small as a cat? And I say, for that, she will bite you. You know what? <laughs> I, you know, when COVID came around, I didn't know what to do. Cindy, for the first time in my adult life, I didn't have a suitcase to pack. I didn't have any place to go. Um, and I needed something to do because I'm not I'm not a homemaker. I don't even know what it's, what it's like to be at home 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I was feeling a little bit touchy, and uh, I went to the Humane Society, and I put my name on a list to adopt or foster some of the dogs that were being sent to kill shelters. And lo and behold, I meet this girl. Uh, and she just looked apart. She had these big brown eyes. She looked at me. I looked at her, and I said, okay, come on home. I was drinking a cold beer, and the damn dog took her paw and knocked it over and started drinking. I said, your ass is, you're not going back to the shelter. I'm taking you. Aww. That's Zora. I Aww. named her Zora, Zora May. Oh, I love, I love her. She's God. the love of my life. She keeps me healthy. She puts me in my place. And you know what I love most about Zora? At 9 o'clock at night when I want to turn on TV to watch cable, Zora gets the the remote and she puts a paw over it like, nope, HGTV, up to bed. Let's go to bed. Oh, oh isn't that delicious? She's smart. Uh, isn't She's that smart. delicious? Oh, is there anything you can't maybe 
lived down? I mean, was anything so bad? Some of us are embarrassed about things that have happened in our lives. Is there anything you can't live down? Well, you know, look, when you get fired on national TV, uh, and I was on Park Avenue when I got the the word, it bothered me because my mother at that time, my mother was still alive. And I never, I, I, I didn't have the guts to call my mom and say, I just got fired on national TV, don't watch the news, and please don't get the newspaper tomorrow. But I had to do it. It was the worst day of my life. And I'll never forget that as long as I live because after I explained to her what had happened, and of course, you know, I'm her daughter, and I told her that I had apologized and I was wrong, and I went ahead and, and resigned from the Dukakis campaign. My mother said, it's all right. Come on home. It's all right. No sooner than I got home, I lost my mom. Oh, my mom died oh, at gosh. the age of 52. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Can and I said, you know, as as hard as it was to get fired from the Dukakis campaign, it was even harder uh, to not see your mom again in life. And that was hard. No, I, I understand that. What is your family background? I am the third of nine children, grew up, uh, was born in New Orleans, grew up in Canada. In fact, as we speak, uh, there's another named hurricane that is heading toward my beloved city. They've ordered an evacuation. Uh, but I grew up, uh, uh, we lived on the, I guess, the wrong side of the tracks because every time it rained, we had water front property. Uh, we were so poor that uh, we just we just kept waiting for something good to happen uh, for us. But uh, my parents were the kind of people that believed in everything from the Lord all the way to their kids working hard. So uh, I, I am uh, I'm the proud aunt now of a of a, a a niece that just finished law school and she's going to clerk in Texas, and my nephew uh, is going to LSU Medical School. So I'm 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 really happy. It's 40 years uh, since I left my my beloved home state of Louisiana, and I'm still cooking with grease. <laughs> I, I understand. If you had a kid, would you want him or her to be in politics? No, ma'am. <laughs> no. <laughs> Why go through the hell I've been through? What um, hell? You're star. You're on TV. You were silver. You were black haired. Now you're silver haired. You're making a lot of money. What's so bad about with you? Well, look, my my mission was to open doors and to create opportunities for others to run for office. I think, uh, you know, I was able to raise one of my nieces and she's turned out to be quite good. She's a school teacher. In fact, she's a vice principal. Uh, she has similar values that I have, and she cares about her kids. She has uh, the pre-K through uh, sixth grade, and I think I turned out to be a good auntie. I think I'm a better auntie than a, probably a better mother. Look look at my life. Uh, Cindy, I've lived out of a suitcase. I used to have a two-day suitcase, a three-day suitcase, <laughs> a five-day suitcase, and a one-week suitcase. And all of those suitcases are now in my basement because I have no place to go because we've got to get this COVID under control so Donna, Auntie Donna can travel again and go sit at bars. You know, I miss sitting at bars. I love you, and I thank you, and I want to look forward to having dinner with you. So tell me when you're going to come back to New York City, and I'll buy, honey. 
Thanks. Well, I want to buy because if Even I can't better. buy, then I want to cook up something so delicious that after you finish eating it, you're going to tell the whole world that you had the best gumbo, the best etouffee, the best jambalaya because you got it from an authentic Louisiana girl. Thank you. I'm sure I'm not going to say any of that, but I love you, and I'll talk to you later. I <laughs> love you, too. And Zora says hello. <laughs> Goodbye. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye, Cindy. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Now, Rick Miramontes has handled PR for some of our biggest Broadway shows, musicals, straight, legit shows, everything. Okay, Rick, name some of the shows you've worked on. What did you start with? Um, Sunset Boulevard. You've heard of that. Oh, God, yes. Cats. You've heard of that. Um, you have also heard of Hair. You have also heard of Kinky Boots. And you have heard of Dear Evan Hansen. That's a few things. That's a few things. Since I know you, I can't understand why that many people hired you. I don't understand that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to what's happening on Broadway in a, now in a moment. But first, what, what might be the toughest part of doing publicity for a show that's opening. I mean, the, the toughest to please. There are stars, there are critics, audiences, press, producers, backers. They're all pains in the ass. So which? Uh, I, I I agree on the latter, but I will say the toughest to please because they are the constituency that you can't really influence. They just go right to the show, and that's the critics. And there are good critics and there are not good critics. So sometimes they're a real pain in the backside. Sometimes they're absolutely well-informed, but I have little influence over them. But some of them really like you and they're your personal friends. Absolutely. So how does that work? Well, I think your personal relationship, which is born out of respect, which means the critics I hang out with are the ones who are really good. And they... Pump me for information to make them smarter about doing their job, but professional and personal, never the twain shall meet. How does that work? If you're a friend with a critic and you take them to dinner or they take you to dinner and they're pumping for information and it's a lousy show and they're still with you, how do you do that? I think, though, Cindy, if it's a lousy show, they avoid me like the plague. (laughs) And I do likewise. (laughs) <laughs> now I know why I'm not invited to every show that's you open. honestly you are not a critic but you are probably the sharpest tongue um what's the word tastemaker in town listen to me listen to me because of the documentary that's on me on mm. Showtime which is on four parts and is again on tonight Sunday everybody's watching you this you were thing. nasty I to was me. you weren't great to me you were not great you were what did, okay what did i say that was you so said controversial stuff like she can be poisonous there's stuff like that uh, and <laughs> i mean tell us something we don't know Mm. And I have you want to be nice, and you are semi-snotty, <laughs> semi-snotty. I'm telling you, everybody's watching that documentary because they say they saw me on this documentary. They did, they did. And they said I was pretty good. Nobody you're said the you only were pretty one, good. You're the only one who didn't like what I said. Because I don't lie. Okay. So now, <laughs> what's the rundown now for Broadway's opening? We should live so long. I mean, what is really going to happen? Well, look, here's the thing about Broadway. I have just come from the Walter Kerr Theater where Hades Town. you were there on opening yeah, night. I was. And it won the Tony. It's the reigning Tony Award winning best I know, musical. I know, I know. is in tech. 
The actors are on the stage, and it's getting ready to reopen um, next Thursday, which is a magnificent sign. And shortly after Hadestown, on September 14th, you will have the reopenings of The Lion King, Wicked, Hamilton, and Chicago. That's a lot of big hits that are reopening for the public who wants to see those shows. They are buying tickets to see those shows But you're now. not saying they're opening the same week or the same day. What are you talking about? Ha- yes, on September 14th, take your pick. Hamilton, Wicked, Lion King, and Chicago, all opening on the same night. How is that possible, Rick? How can you go? I Well, can you you, you'll have to pick one. I would send you to the Lion King. Or, For a change, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, People are buying tickets and there's a great excitement about Broadway because look, and I think we are in agreement about this. If there is no Broadway, there's no New York. So it is essential to the entire city and the American theater, quite frankly, for Broadway to be alive, thrive and have audiences come back. So if an audience member is a little nervous about coming to the theater, I guess my thing to say is, like World War II, do your bit for New York City, go see a show. I understand that. I mean, nobody can argue with what you're saying. Right. But some of us are a little bit nervous. I mean, I I love Broadway more than I ever loved anything in my life, but it's very frightening for some of us. Well, I I can understand why you would say that. The theaters are small. You're sitting next to somebody on your left and on your right, and there's somebody in front of you and behind you. You're basically in a room with a thousand people in a dark room. But what I need to tell you is that, and this may surprise you, but the scientists, the epidemiologists who are studying big crowds and what they do. It started with sports and this, the uh, <clears throat> Department of Health of the state of New York and some very clever people there um, with, I believe it was the Buffalo Bills playoff game, and they started testing protocols. Fast forward to now, and it's not an exact science, and things are changing, of course, but they have the protocols down for an audience to safely come into the theater. Now, Broadway has rendered the determination that you need to be fully vaccinated. And when you're in your seat watching a show, you need to have a mask on. That's the rule right now. Um, The rules have been followed by the Bruce Springsteen show at the St. James, which opened on June 26th um, at Jordan Roth's Roth's Theater. And uh, I will tell you, because I work on that show, the audiences are there. You know he's selling out because it's Bruce Springsteen. Magnificent show, by the way. And they're absolutely loving it. There are no cases to speak of. There, there's, it's, it's, just, it's almost as if business as usual. So I will say you do need to be fully vaccinated. Um, there will be uh, in life an inordinate amount of testing. I just got back from London uh, where I saw several shows there. And I think they're over the hump. Okay, before I get to London, do you think that there are people who do not wish to sit in a dark, closed place with a mask on for three and a half hours? That's quite possible. That is quite possible. But I'm also here to say that audiences that go to the theater, big group people who go to big group events, it is it has already been proven they are the ones who are going to be the most responsible. 
If they have a temperature, they ain't going to go. If they do not feel well or have a cough, they're not going to go. They are going to do the right thing more than if you are at Bergdorf's shopping with a stranger. That I'd be more nervous about. Well, you haven't shopped at Bergdorf's anyway. I so what shop at Bergdorf's men. <laughs> not a lo- I'm looking at you. You look like you never shopped You there. know nothing of fashion, apparently. <laughs> These are good, expensive clothes I have on. Now... I got 87 questions that that jump off what you're saying. Yeah. How will they handle kissing scenes? I mean, they've got on Broadway, it's a kiss, it's a hug, it's a it's how? How are they going to do that? You right. You're now now you're talking about another constituency, the bubble that is the backstage personnel. Actors, stagehands, musicians, And first and foremost, they are not going to interact with the audience. So the audience is one faction, one bubble. The people on stage are another. And they're not going to intersect. That's rule number one. Um, They stay very cloistered. Right now, there are a bunch of shows in rehearsal. The only people allowed into the room are the people who need to be there to make the show go, like the actors, etc., Everybody needs to be vaccinated. That's a rule that has been uh, mandated by the Actors' Equity Union. And um, anybody who who intersects or gets into the goes into the room needs to be tested um, regularly. Uh, for example, I was just in the Walter Kerr Theater. Uh, I was nowhere near the actors, but for me to be allowed, and I work on that show and in that theater, to be allowed into the theater, I need to be rapid tested. I needed to be rapid tested, and the test results needed to be learned. And I think that's just going to be a function of how we proceed in the rest of 2021 and into 2022, and that's how we're going to work on Broadway. But it is because we have the best scientists on the case building protocols for each show based on the needs of the show. And so far, so damn good. Fine. You don't know about ladies' rooms, I'm sure. I'm not finished with the question. Okay. But how will they handle those? (laughs) <laughs> well, I think the problems with ladies' rooms on Broadway have existed for years before the coronavirus. That's number one. Number two, I think it's it's it is what it is. You wait in line and you go, you go to the ladies' room. Now, funnily enough, though, I know there are certain theaters on Broadway. And certain savvy audience members, and I'm not going to give away their uh, their secrets, but they just leave the theater at the beginning of intermission. They know exactly what bar down the block to go to, order a glass of wine that they may or may not drink, and they use the room, the, the restroom there with absolutely no line. Pretty smart. I know about that. But peeing is that in what a group, you do? No, well, sometimes. Ah. <laughs> peeing in a group is going to be a little bit difficult. I mean, really. I, is, I didn't know that's what you did in the ladies' room. Well, what I, do you think they do there? Put on <laughs> mascara? Of course they're going to do that. I mean, you, tell me how that's going to happen. Um, uh, <laughs> tell me the protocols for peeing. I would like. I would like to hear that. Cindy, that is way above my pay grade. 
It's below your pay grade. (laughs) (laughs) How are they going to handle also the tight seats? Seriously, if a guy behind you, it's very tight. If he coughs or he gets sneezes, it's all over you. How are you going to do that? I don't think people are going to go to the theater if they're coughers or sneezers, and they will have a mask on. So as much as you trust the science of wearing a mask, that's how that problem is going to be handled. But you make an interesting point about seats, because at the San Francisco Opera, I believe, they have enlarged the seats, and there are certain Broadway houses that have done same, and maybe that's the trend. Bigger okay. bigger seats, you know. They were bigger before. Maybe they got smaller. Now maybe they need to get a little bigger. Maybe because, thanks to the COVID, our behinds have gotten a little bit well, larger. I mean... I mean, really, we're, we're all home eating. That's I all we... Speak for yourself. I've, I've, watch re- your mouth. I've reduced... Watch your mouth. You're my <laughs> guest. All right, tell me about your your trip to London. So London, here's here was here's the interesting thing, which is why I'm optimistic about all of it. First of all, I took a JetBlue flight. Yes, JetBlue flies to London, and it was as simple as possible. And I, I fly coast to coast a lot on JetBlue. So it felt to me like I was going to San Francisco. Um, you do have to get tested. Let's see how many. One, two, three. I was tested three times between the time I left New York and returned to New York. But other than that, it was smooth sailing. The airports aren't as full, so that was fantastic. And it was rather pleasant. You know, that flight was pretty damn good both ways. So no problems there. When I got to London, I saw some terrific theater, which has gone on without a hitch. And uh, the crowds were there. The crowds were at every show I saw. And I was lucky enough to go to the opening of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella. And that's a big hit. Everybody watch out for that when it comes to New York or go to London to see it. And um, the critics loved it. And the audiences you could feel could not be more overjoyed to be in a group of people in a dark room loving a show. There's something about that ritual that I think people have missed so much. But he had a lot, Andrew, had a lot of problems yes, with the government did. and everything. Going yes, he to did. open his shows, going to open his new theater. Yes. He had a lot of problems. He You're did. the only one who keeps saying everything is so wonderful. No, it, because that is in the past. That show, the, the, the show was, the opening of the show was canceled. It felt very on again, off again for a while. There were other situations like that. But I am here to tell you that the West End in London is open for business, and every show I saw was packed to the gills, and everybody was chill about it. Okay, okay. So, you're tell me about tell me about Diana. I mean, I everybody is waiting for that show, Diana. That's the sh- one of the shows that you are handling. I remember being almost backstage when it was about to open. Yeah. I saw, what's his name, who did all the costumes? William, yeah. William. Uh, Ivy Long. I, William I, Ivy Long. I saw his 30 outfits. I saw all of it. And then, boom, it was gone. So now, how does it get redone? Well, I'll tell you a very interesting and sort of unprecedented thing happened with Diana during the shutdown. Uh, the the producer, Beth Williams, and her partner, Frank Marshall, the great Frank Marshall, the Hollywood producer who won the uh, Gene Hirschhold Humanitarian Award last year, um, convinced, I guess that's the word, Netflix 
to partner with them to film the show in the theater that the show was performing in before the shutdown without an audience, and they made a film of the musical. They didn't just capture it. It's not like something you'd see on Zoom. It's an actual film of the musical, and it will debut on October the 1st. And to me, that's going to help this Diana mania that I am feeling. Because in, when I was in London, the number one question people asked me was, what is that Diana musical like? And tell me about it. Um, so as of October 1st, people are going to actually be able to see it on Netflix. I'm told there are going to be viewing parties all over the country and in London, this, that, and the other. But following that... You know, on Tuesday, November the 2nd, at the Long Acre Theater, the show will resume previews to open on Wednesday, November the 17th. And that's an unprecedented situation. How do you think that's going to, how do you think it's going to do? Oh, I think it'll be terrific. I think it'll be fabulous. First of all, first of all, I know the show itself. Yeah. I know, I know that. Second of all, Diana is magnet, a magnet. Third of all, because of Megan and her fat mouth, it's even more interesting because everybody wants to pee on Megan or anything else she might have said. So all in all... And or the, empathize with her. I wouldn't go that far. And the her, and her <laughs> majesty of the queen, we're all sympathetic to, to everything. So I think it's going to be the... Unfortunately, you're the PR for it, but it's going to be the number one terrific musical of the season. I, That's what I think. I I would agree with you, and uh, I will see you there on opening night, and uh, I'll pay for dinner this time. Oh, that would be an interesting experience since I haven't I haven't had that since Hell's a Poppin' in eighteen forty. Oh my goodness. You will never forgive me for forgetting my wallet at the hotel in Washington, DC and you had to pick up the tab. Yes. And then the next time you took me to Gallagher's and there were five people that you invited. My staff. Not I. Not I. You had left your wallet somewhere, probably in your pants, and but they never came out. No, you're so holding. I had to get that back. You're holding that one against <laughs> me because I ordered the seafood tower, which, of course, when you go to Gallagher's, <laughs> what are you going to order? <laughs> okay. Okay. Did you, did you ever handle something that really, well, I know you did, but that went really <laughs> bad? Well, I mean, the poster <laughs> child for that question has to be the infamous Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, um, which, you know, people have people. First of all, everybody around the world knows about that show. And, you know, the, the, the stories are legend. I will tell you, though. So and that's an interesting thing about working in the theater. It's like being a parent. You love all your kids. Just period. You love all your kids. Pain in the ass, kid. Brilliant kid. You love them all. I love my shows. When I'm working on a show and I'm invited into that that party, I enjoy it and I defend them and I do my best for them. And I have to tell you, of all the shows I've ever worked on, Spider-Man was unique because it was unique. Um, and it was a wonderful ride, I have to say. And there were three moments that were difficult. You probably know what they were. Um, but it was pretty magnificent. Um, I stick up for my shows when they are under attack. And I think you, that's what you and I have in common. Because you stick up for some very sketchy characters, but they're your friends and there you go. Tell us tell us some of the experiences at Spider-Man. 
Do you remember them? Oh, I'll tell you the best one because I think she is magnificent. When I was invited to work on that show, the director, Julie Taymor, said, come to the theater. They had just started putting the set, loading the set in, et cetera. So it was very early on. And she said, I'm going to walk you through the show. I'm going to have the associate designer be at the set model and... She is, he is going to move all the little teeny tiny characters on the set model, and I'm going to tell you the story. And boy, was she captivating. And I remember when, when she was done walking me through the entire show, I said to myself, this is going to be the greatest show that ever happened on Broadway. What do I know? <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. And it was also exciting, I have to say, honorable mention to, of course, Bono and The Edge, who wrote the songs. There is no superstar bigger than Bono. I think he is magnificent. Is he a friend of yours? Yeah, I think he's a friend of yours. Yes. Yeah, he's just fantastic. Great New Yorker and had a lot of spirit. Um, Took it on the chin a lot, you know, with that show, as everybody did. Um, But it it was great fun to be around him. You know, it's great fun to be around big rock stars. Let's face it. Okay, how was it fun to be around Harvey Weinstein? It was no fun to be around Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein was a terrible Broadway producer. You know, he might have known what he was doing. And of course, I know the movies that he produced over the years. But he was no fun. And we did not get along. Oh, really? Like, I don't know that. Mm. So can you tell me quickly why he was... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you why, because, you know, when you would sit in a meeting with Harvey Weinstein, who was on my turf. He was the newbie on my turf. And you're sitting in a meeting and he's berating everybody around him um, like we don't know what we're doing. You can only take so much of that and you can only be so polite. But I threw a fit and I quit publicly and I broke things and I was furious with him. And it was it was, you know, I took the bait because he's that's what he loves. But I'll tell you why I did it. I'll tell you why I did that, because he, if he was going to succeed, he needed to make a better show, and he needed to be nicer. And, of course, two lessons that he never learned, but I tried. Well, it was boring to talk to you, Rick, and I want to thank you very much for schlepping in, and I'll see you soon when you buy dinner. Cindy, we will <laughs> see you on Broadway, and we're very grateful for your support of Broadway and when you're there, and I'll see you on opening nights, and I will buy you dinner. <laughs> on my producers, of course. <laughs> It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, I'm going off. You've had enough of me. I'm reminding you to check in tonight on my second episode of this four-part documentary on me that Oscar winner Ron Howard produced. It's on me. It's titled Gossip. It's on Showtime tonight, 8 p.m. to 9. If you like it, I'm grateful. If you don't, I'm sending you a 9 by 14 enlargement of Joe Biden in tights. Bye.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 